0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three post screen interview, all on Indeed. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. Get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com peter offer valid through september 30th terms and conditions apply and the podcast is also sponsored by literati literati is the subscription book club that makes it easy to get unique and interesting books delivered to your door you can redeem your 30-day trial for only 99 cents at literati.com gold A lot of people had been messaging me on Instagram, on Twitter, that I had to watch this new documentary by Frontline, The Power of the Fed. And so I finally got around to watching it this morning. And, you know, before I watched it, my expectations were not that high. After all, it's PBS, public broadcasting, right? A government entity. So the bar was set pretty low in my mind, even though a lot of people had told me, hey, this is really good. They really exposed the Fed and they're very critical of the Fed. You know, I really wanted to see it for myself before I uh, reached any conclusions. So I watched the documentary. And you know what? As low as I set the bar... I didn't set it low enough because they didn't even meet my low expectations. I did not think this documentary did a good job at all of exposing the Fed. In fact, I don't even think it was really a documentary. I think it was more of a propaganda piece than a legitimate investigatory news story. First of all, the host, the correspondent, was a guy by the name of James Jacoby. And so he's the guy uh, that narrates this and does all of the interviews. And from my perspective, what I really think the agenda was behind this supposed documentary was not so much to say, hey, the Fed is a bad actor. The Fed is responsible for these problems. It was really to say that the Fed is using its power incorrectly that the Fed is concentrating its powers on the rich and neglecting everybody else. And the one aspect where the Fed has done damage is the moral hazard and asset bubbles and widening the disparity between the rich and the poor. That is basically the only criticism that this documentary got right. but moral hazard and enriching the wealthy with asset bubbles and all that that's just one part of the damage that the fed does it's a lot more that's like the tip of an iceberg but this documentary ignored the iceberg and just focused on that one little tip and i think it's because their agenda is to try to redirect the power of the fed from wall street to Main Street, right? And so, hey, if the Fed can make the rich rich, why not just have the Fed make everybody else rich? The problem is, it doesn't work that way. The Fed can blow asset bubbles. And so the Fed can enrich the people temporarily who own those assets. But the Fed cannot create real economic growth. So it can't make workers rich, it can't increase real wages, it doesn't have that power. But I think the producers of this documentary believe that it does. And they probably want the Federal Reserve to focus its power on helping Main Street and therefore helping to fund this big government agenda that is now gaining traction in Washington. That's really the message here. And, you know, when you think about power, because that's the, you know, the title, the power of the Fed, right? Because as if the Fed has the power to do good, Well, you know what? Power tends to corrupt. That's what Lord Acton said. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think the Federal Reserve is the closest thing we have in the financial markets to absolute power. And it is absolutely corrupt. And also, you know, about power, right? It can be very destructive. Yes, power could be used for benevolent purposes, but it can also be used for destructive purposes. Remember John Marshall, the power to tax involves the power to destroy? Well, so does the power to inflate. Inflation is a tax. And what the Federal Reserve is using is its power to help the government tax us through inflation to destroy the economy. And that is the bigger picture that this so-called documentary completely... Overlooks, But let me start dissecting this piece by piece. I'm going to go over it. I made some notes of what was said. And then after you listen to my podcast, you can go ahead and listen to this thing. Not that I really want to encourage it to get more views, uh, but maybe you can at least go over there and make some comments because they are allowing comments. At least they haven't disabled the comments. So people can comment and maybe make some of these points on the comment section. So maybe some of the people who get brainwashed by the documentary, maybe they can get a little reverse brainwash if they bother to read some of the comments. Maybe you could direct people to listen to my critique of this documentary. And of course, I'm not criticizing it just because they didn't invite me to be a part of it. I mean, there are a lot of very ardent Fed critics, not just me, that could have been a part of this broadcast. They only had a couple and who knows how much of their real criticism got edited out before they had the final piece because a couple of the people that were there I know do have more sharp criticism of the Fed but probably those particularly sharp criticisms were deliberately edited out of the final version. But look they had nobody that was a real critic certainly prior to the 2008 financial crisis, nobody like me who was out there warning about the problems, and nobody who was warning about the consequences of quantitative easing. So by design, they wanted to present this documentary as if it was fair and balanced as far as showing all the criticism of the Fed, but it really wasn't in the way they selected the lineup of the people who they chose to allow to criticize the Fed, and then I'm sure they highly edited their criticism. But rather than really, you know, indict the Fed, which is what a true documentary would do about these asset bubbles. I mean, this is nothing like the documentary, The Bubble, produced by Jimmy Morrison, which did include me as one of the people who was very critical of the Fed. And by the way, the sequel to that original documentary, I think, is going to be released soon. If you haven't already seen that documentary, you can go to letusdisagree.com and you can purchase a copy of the bubble movie. You could also see on their website, there was the premiere in New York and there's a interview with me and some of the other stars from the bubble movie. It's hosted by Liz Klayman from Fox Business. But that's a real legitimate documentary that really puts the blame squarely on the Fed for everything. This documentary really just lets the Fed off the hook. And it kind of tries to blame Wall Street and the rich for kind of corrupting the Fed that, hey, the Fed is this benevolent institution and it just got infiltrated by Wall Street. And Wall Street led it astray. And so we need to reform the Fed because we've got to get the Fed to use its power on Main Street. And it's part of the villainization of the rich. We have to tax the rich. We need higher taxes. The rich are bad. And you see, they benefit from everything, including the Federal Reserve. The Fed is in the pocket of the rich. And while I don't disagree that the Fed's policies are benefiting the rich. I do disagree that the Fed has policies that can benefit anybody. The Fed cannot benefit Main Street by doing what it does to benefit Wall Street. It can't just print money and, and just dole it out because that's really all it could do. But what this documentary does want the Fed to do is monetize the debts of the Biden administration so that the government could get bigger and solve some of these social problems that The producers of this documentary obviously believe government is capable of solving if it only had the cooperation and the help of the Federal Reserve. So let's take a look at the documentary itself. Where does it begin? Well, it starts off with the COVID crisis, and it shows people who are unemployed. They have no savings. They were living paycheck to paycheck. They're out of work. They don't have any money to buy food, right? The country is a real disaster. Well, the point that the documentary fails to make is why is it that so many Americans were so vulnerable to COVID? Why does nobody have any savings? Why is everybody loaded up with debt and living paycheck to paycheck? One of the main reasons is the Fed's monetary policy That discourages savings by keeping interest rates artificially low and encourages debt, again, by keeping interest rates artificially low. Why would you save when the return on savings is zero? And why not go out and borrow when borrowing is so cheap? And so the Federal Reserve helps ensure that Americans are living on the edge that we don't have the type of savings that we used to have before the Fed got involved and corrupted the system. So they right off the bat miss an opportunity to kind of identify the source of the problem, that if we had a real economy, if we really had a healthy, strong economy, we would have been strong enough to weather the COVID storm. Yes, you know, we could have all stayed away from work for a month or two. That would have been no problem because we would have had plenty of savings to fall back on. The fact of the matter is we had no savings to fall back on, and so we fell flat on the floor, right? And so now it's the government that was supposed to try to lift us back up, when if it wasn't for the government, we wouldn't have needed the hand because we would have been able to stand on our own two feet. But anyway, so then after they show all the people who are broke and who have lost their jobs, then they segue over to the financial market and Wall Street, and here is what James Jacoby is saying. He says, but while businesses were shuddering and millions were left unemployed, one place has been thriving like never before. Stocks were surging even as America entered its darkest chapter yet of this pandemic now first of all he says stocks have surging like never before well we've had huge stock market surges before right what about the dot-com bubble I mean to say that this has never happened sure it's happened before and it happened because of the Fed every time we have a big bubble the Fed's behind it but the documentary doesn't want to go over anything that happened before 2008 and so it's acting like this is unprecedented what we saw in the market And so then when they start talking about the market, they show Elon Musk, Tesla, all the money he's making. They start talking about GameStop and people in the stock market jumping on these types of stocks. And then he says, as the financial world has been diverging from the real world, I've been trying to understand the many forces at play. And I found one institution that has been at the center of it all. Right, He found this one institution. He ferreted it out. In his investigative journalism, he found the one institution at the center of this massive stock market bubble. And what do you know? The Federal Reserve, the Nasa Central Bank. So he's acting like he discovered this. Like if it wasn't for this frontline documentary, nobody would have realized that it was the Federal Reserve that was at the center of the stock market mania, right? So it's a good thing we have investigative journalists who can break these kind of stories, right? They can really dig down deep and ferret out news that nobody else knows about. So he comes up with this brainstorm of an idea that, hey, it's the Federal Reserve. What do you know? The bank that artificially uh, sets interest rates down at zero, that prints all this money, they're the reason that there's a big party on Wall Street. So then they start interviewing people and... They talk to Howard Marks, Oaktree Capital Management, and Howard makes a comment, nobody knows how this is going to turn out. This is an experiment, right? Meaning that the Fed printing all this money is some kind of new experiment, and we don't really know how it's going to work. And then James Jacoby says, yeah, you know, I've heard that over and over again. Everybody I'm talking to says that we're living through this epic experiment run by the Fed. This is not true. This is not an experiment because an experiment is something like that 's never been done before, so it 's experimental and since it 's never been done before, you don 't know how it 's going to work out, right because you 're the first ones to do it. The Fed did not invent printing money I mean they 've been printing money for hundreds of years. I mean ever since they came up with the printing press uh, and governments figured out that they could print money they 've been doing it, and so this is not new and it's certainly not experimental because we already know how this ends. See, every nation in the history of the world that has done what the Fed is doing now, it's always ended in disaster. The currency always gets wiped out. It's massive inflation. So it can't be an experiment if it's been done hundreds of times throughout history and the result is always the same every time you try it. So there is nothing new, there is nothing experimental about what the Fed is doing. We know how it's going to end. It's going to end in disaster. But then James Jacoby goes on to say this. If you want to understand how today's financial world has grown so far removed from the real world and the role of the Federal Reserve, you need to go back to 2008 when investors, speculators, and Wall Street bankers nearly brought down the global economy. So right off the bat, and this is early in the documentary, this sets the stage because Jacoby and the guys at Frontline are blaming capitalism, Wall Street investors and speculators for the 2008 financial crisis. They completely ignore the Federal Reserve's role in creating that crisis. They ignore all of the monetary policy prior to 2008. They pretend it never existed, that the Fed never slashed interest rates to 1% following the bursting of the dot-com bubble, which they also don't talk about, that the Fed also inflated. So when that bubble popped and they slashed rates to 1%, right, and you have these artificially low interest rates, and then you have a real estate boom, which ends predictably in the 2008 financial crisis, right? That was part of the subject of my 2007 book, Crash Proof, right? I I saw this. I saw this coming from a mile away. That's why I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, they didn't have anybody like me at this documentary who was blaming the Fed for the 2008 financial crisis because they wanted to place all the blame for the financial crisis on Wall Street and on the rich because that is part of their agenda. So they pretend that the Fed didn't really get involved in manipulating the economy or artificially lowering interest rates or creating moral hazard or any of this stuff. It all started brand new in 2008. But it really started, of course, in the Greenspan era. It really started after the stock market crash of 1987. Right? Alan Greenspan had just become a Fed chairman. It was his first year as Fed chairman. And he began the policy that ultimately is the same policy that was later adopted by Bernanke and then by Yellen and now by Powell. It was all started by Alan Greenspan, yet he wasn't even mentioned once in this entire documentary. He wrote the playbook that everybody else is using, yet somehow his name didn't even come up in the entire documentary. Again, because they want to forget about all the mistakes the Fed made under Greenspan because they want to pretend that they didn't start making those mistakes until after 2008 when capitalism and the rich wrecked the economy and the Fed came in to save it. And then they immediately start interviewing with Richard Fisher. And Richard Fisher was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas in 2008. So he was right there when the financial crisis hit. And here's what he said. What the Federal Reserve does is provide the blood supply for the body of our capitalist economy. <laughs> and what happened in 2008 is that all the veins and the capillaries and the arteries collapsed. So every financial function had failed. It had collapsed and we, right, meaning the Fed, had to restore them, right? First of all, there's so much wrong with this statement by Dick Fisher. First of all, in a true capitalist economy, there would be no Fed. Right so when you talk about the Fed and capitalism they kind of you know don't go together it's an oxymoron the fed is a government creation it's not a free market creation under capitalism interest rates are set by the market they're not fixed by like a government entity so the federal reserve is not part of capitalism right it is a parasite on the capitalist body that's what it is and really what happened in 2008 isn't that the body of capitalism failed. It was that the government parasite, which had been killing it, was under attack by the immune system of the body, which is the free market. What happened in 2008 was all of the imbalances that had been created by the Federal Reserve were under attack by the free market. The free market was trying to correct all the distortions and all the imbalances. And of course, that brings about a recession or crisis as we're trying to fix, right, what the Fed broke. And so what the Fed was really doing with respect to the body was fighting off the cure by trying to make the disease worse. So this was not the capitalist body that had failed. It was a zombie body that the government had created out of the capitalist body and The antibodies were trying to fight off the infection, the socialism that had infected it through the Federal Reserve and restore it to health. And the Federal Reserve prevented that from happening by making the virus stronger so that it could withstand the cure and get bigger and bigger. And so then, too, Jacoby mentions, and now this is after 2008, right, because Dick Fitcher had just laid the foundation of what was going wrong with the economy in 2008. And then Jacoby, in narration, says that's when the Fed stepped in. In 2008, Fed officials decided to do something that they hadn't done in nearly a half century, right? That's 50 years, right? They began dropping rates, eventually to almost zero. Wait a minute. Something they hadn't done in 50 years, dropping rates Rates were dropped to 1% in 2004, four years earlier. Not only does this documentary completely ignore the Fed monetary policy mistakes that were made prior to 2008, they pretend they weren't even made. They are completely missing that entire time period by saying the Fed had not slashed interest rates to near zero in 50 years. What is 1%? 1% is pretty close to zero. In fact, that was as close to zero as anyone was willing to go back in 2004. They started cutting them. Rates were over 5%. So to say that this was, you know, unknown territory, they had done something they hadn't done in 50 years, slashing interest rates, that's exactly what they did four years earlier. It didn't work then, and it's not going to work now. If hiring great people is your company's goal, you need a game plan to make sure it happens fast. Find the right person fast with Indeed's Instant Match. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in just one place, even the interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate finds you. Find them first. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job ad. You can even invite them to apply right away, and according to Indeed data, candidates you invite are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search alone. Plus, with Instant Match, Indeed data shows 90% of employers get quality candidates from Indeed's resume database as soon as they sponsor a job post, according to Indeed data. So join the 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And you can get started now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valor through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply.
1: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members of FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20.
0: But in addition to lowering interest rates, the thing that they did in 2008 that they didn't do after the dot-com bubble popped in 2002 was quantitative easing. That's what was new. Dropping interest rates near zero was not new because they had just done that a few years earlier. And Frontline just conveniently ignores that. Again, it doesn't just ignore it. It actually says it didn't happen by claiming you have to go back 50 years. But then they talk about quantitative easing, which was something that they did not do when the earlier bubble Pops. And so then you have Richard Fixer saying, and then there was this question, what else can we do, right? So the people at the Federal Reserve were sitting around, OK, we've lowered interest rates to zero, but what else can we do? Because that's probably not low enough. And then the committee came up with the idea of quantitative easing. They just came up with this novel idea, quantitative easing. They didn't come up with anything except the name. Quantitative easing. Because what quantitative easing is, is just printing money. It's monetizing government debt. I mean, this has been around for centuries. They didn't come up with it, they didn't think about it. I mean, it's something that's been around. It's been causing disasters every time it's happened. So it wasn't some novel idea. The only thing that was novel about it was calling it quantitative easing. Because if they had actually been honest and called it by what it actually is, monetizing government debt, Well, then the public might not have been willing to accept it. So they had to dress it up, put lipstick on the pig, and call it quantitative easing. And again, I've talked about this when Ben Bernanke, who, by the way, they mentioned that he declined an invitation to be interviewed, and I guess I don't blame him, but in any event, um, when Ben Bernanke went to Congress early on when they first did QE1, and there were Republicans that said, hey, you're monetizing government debt. And then he said, no, no, we're not. We're not monetizing government debt at all. We're not, you know, a banana republic. And so Ben Bernanke described the difference between quantitative easing and debt monetization. See, debt monetization is when the government buys the debt and then holds onto it, you know, forever. But under QE, the Federal Reserve buys debt and then sells it, right? So it's only temporary. It's transitory, right? That's basically what Bernanke was saying when he did QE1, that QE was just transitory. Right? That the Fed was stepping in for a short period of time as kind of a buffer, and therefore the Fed was not going to really be monetizing U.S. government debt because it was only going to hold that debt for a short period of time, and then it was going to return it to the market, so it wasn't true debt monetization. Now, of course— I commented at the time that he was lying, that there was no way the Fed could actually sell these assets back into the market without creating a bigger crisis than the one they were trying to solve by buying the assets in the first place. And of course, I ended up being right because all of the bonds that the Fed bought back then, they still own and a whole lot more. So by his own definition, if you go back to Bernanke's explanation of the difference between quantitative easing and debt monetization, it's clear that what the Fed has been doing is debt monetization. So we're doing exactly what Ben Bernanke said that we weren't doing. But again, all quantitative easing is, is debt monetization, because there is no difference, because it wasn't transitory. It was permanent, just like the inflation today is not transitory, it's permanent. So, anyway, so they claim that they came up with this brilliant new idea called quantitative easing. And then Dick Fixer says it's almost like alchemy, right? Oh, we discovered this new thing. You can create money out of thin air if you're the central bank. So, you're creating more money. This is what he said. Creating more money puts more money into the banking system, puts more money out there for the economy to take it and put it to work and grow and restore itself, right? So according to Dick Fisher, this is this great thing that they discovered. You could just print money and just put it in the economy. And, you know, magic, we're going to have all this economic growth because everyone's going to take all this money and put it to use. But the money is nothing. It's just paper, The Fed doesn't add value when it adds money. The only thing that the Fed does when it adds new money into the economy is it destroys the value of the existing money that's already in the economy. That's all that happens. It prevents prices from going down. It doesn't do anything constructive unless you think that preserving inflated asset prices is constructive, but it's not. We don't need more money. What we need is more production. We need more goods and services to be produced, and that doesn't require money. What money is used is to divide up what's produced. So first you have to produce it, and then you can consume it. Just printing money and stirring it into the pot doesn't do anything. If it was true, then every country could be rich because every central bank possesses a printing press, and so everybody could print money. The reason that we're all not rich, every country isn't rich, is because it doesn't work. The way a country gets rich is by being productive. And then you have to have a capitalist economy where you'll have uh, private enterprise, you'll have incentives, you'll have market forces, uh, you'll have all of the things that we know are necessary to achieve genuine prosperity. But none of that is served by simply printing money because the money itself conveys no real value. It's the goods and services that get produced and we don't need new money to produce them. We can get by with the quantity of money that already exists. The markets just have to reset prices to make that quantity of money work because all the money is is paper. And then if we have more money, well, then the prices just have to be higher. That's all that changes. You put more money into the economy, you change the price levels in the economy. You don't change the real economic output. You don't make anybody richer. You just cause everybody to put different prices, higher prices on what they already have. Then they talked to this guy, Andrew Huzar. And this guy was hired by the New York Fed to run the asset purchase program. So he was buying up all of the government bonds and all the mortgages for quantitative easing, right? And so here's what Andrew Huzar says. About the idea. He says the idea was that the Fed was trying to get more credit and cheaper credit into the hands of average Americans. There were millions of people losing their jobs, millions of people in mortgages that they couldn't afford. And how could the Fed use its financial tools to actually help the average Americans? Well, first of all, the Fed can't use its tools to help average Americans because the only tool it has is to print money. And creating inflation hurts average Americans, it doesn't help them. But some of the bigger oversights of this statement was he's talking about the fact that people had mortgages that they couldn't afford. Well, why is that? Why did so many people have all these big mortgages? It was the Fed. The Fed lowers interest rates to 1%. You had Alan Greenspan actually encouraging people to take on adjustable rate mortgages. He went out and talked about how it was a great financial tool and it allowed people to manage their house and use it. As an ATM, I mean, he was a very big promoter of the adjustable rate mortgages. So you had all of these Americans taking advantage of the gift from the Fed where you can get a teaser rate on an adjustable rate mortgage and people could buy much bigger houses than they could afford or much more expensive houses and take on much bigger mortgages. So the main reason that so many people had mortgages that they couldn't afford was the Fed. And here's this guy saying, oh, my God, we have this big problem that the Fed needs to solve. Yeah, the Fed caused the problem. Same thing about people losing their jobs. Why were people losing their jobs in 2008? Because they had the wrong jobs. They needed to lose those jobs. That is the problem with a bubble. It distorts the economy, including labor. Because when the Fed inflates a bubble, resources are misallocated, not just capital, but labor. So think about what was going on. During the housing bubble days, what industries probably hired more people than they really needed, but because there was a bubble, they ended up over-investing in their workers, right? They hired too many people because demand was high, but it was artificial and wasn't sustainable. But during that period, you know, these false signals caused businesses to form and hire workers, in areas of the economy that were a bubble, right? So clearly, in the real estate, you had realtors, you had appraisers, you had brokers, all sorts of people active in the real estate market. Real estate companies obviously hired too many people because of the bubble. When the bubble popped, oh, they needed to lay those people off because they never should have hired them in the first place. During the housing bubble, a lot of people were able to extract equity in their homes, thanks to the Fed, right? The Fed kept interest rates really, really low, and so you had all these home equity loans. And because real estate prices kept going up, again, thanks to the Fed, everybody could borrow because your house was your collateral. And so people were taking out money from their homes and buying stuff that they ordinarily wouldn't have bought. They were remodeling their homes, they were buying cars, uh, they were traveling. And so people were getting jobs in various sectors of the economy, because of the money that homeowners were able to spend because they were able to tap into all that home equity that was all artificial. So when the bubble pops, a lot of the people who got jobs as a function of all that spending, well, they needed to lose their jobs. So the idea that the Fed should try to stop people from losing jobs that they never should have had is wrong. What the free market wants to do is redirect these workers to more productive employment. You don't want to trap them in the bubble jobs. You want to free them up to get the jobs that the economy really needs, right? Not the jobs that are a part of the bubble. If you've always said that you wanted to read more books, well, this summer is yours for the taking. Empower your inner reader with literati book clubs where you can read alongside the world's most aspiring authors and leaders. Join Malala, Stephen Curry, Richard Branson, and more on their next reading adventure. Literati delivers their monthly book picks straight to your door so you can spend less time finding a good book and more time actually reading one. So whether you're enjoying Beach Reads with Ellen Hildebrand or enjoy Mystic Realms with Joseph Campbell Scholars, you'll find their brilliant insights on the Literati app. Authors, leaders, and activists spark lively conversation in 12 unique book clubs, engaging a diverse community of readers from all around the world. That means that you can talk about Stephen Curry's favorite books with Stephen Curry, for real. I joined Richard Branson's club, and I'm looking forward to receiving the July selection, Happiness. They also host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your own questions and get the insider's answers you won't find at any other book club. All book club members can shop the entire Literati library at discounts that are so steep they'll look like cliffhangers and with many books over 50% off. You can also move freely between clubs or use the standard membership to access anything and choose the books that you want delivered. The Literati book club inspires better reading habits. You'll enjoy the fact that the subscription gives you access to exclusive book clubs led by the world's most aspiring authors. So reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your 30-day trial for only 99 cents at literati.com slash gold. Head to literati.com slash gold to learn more and read more with Literati. literati.com slash gold. So then James Jacoby asks Andrew Huzar, is this something that had ever been attempted before? Right? Has anybody ever tried to do this? And he said, no, <laughs> you have to realize that we were in the midst of the next Great Depression. This was an incredible collapse of the fundamental structure of the US economy in a very short period of time. And we were building the plane while we were flying. it. I mean, first of all, the Fed created that structure, that collapse. The fact that the economy was literally a house of cards was all a creation of the Federal Reserve. They weren't just building the plane while they were flying it. They had already crashed the plane. And to say that what the Fed was attempting to do it had never done before, it's almost exactly what it did before, just absent the quantitative easing. But when the Nasdaq bubble popped in 2000 or 2002, the Fed had the exact same strategy. Let's slash interest rates and try to inflate asset prices. That was the goal of quantitative easing was to inflate asset prices. Well, in 2002, they didn't need quantitative easing to inflate asset prices. They were able to inflate asset prices just by lowering interest rates to 1%. But the problem was the drug was no longer effective because by the time the housing bubble popped, which was much bigger than the dot-com bubble, the drug of low interest rates wasn't enough. We had already built up a pretty big tolerance. I mean, after all, rates had been reduced to 1%. The last time. So how much lower could they go? They went to zero. That's only 100 basis points lower. This economy need a much bigger dose of monetary heroin. And so they supplied it with quantitative easing. But to say this was something that had never been attempted, they had just attempted it just a few years earlier, and it was an abysmal failure. You would think if the Fed tries something and it horribly fails because 2008 should have told the Fed if it didn't already know, which it should have known and it could have known by reading my book or just reading any of the countless articles that I was sending out all over the internet between 2002 and 2008, criticizing everything the Fed was doing wrong and pointing out all the horrible consequences that awaited as a result of these mistakes, if they didn't know it before 2008, when that crisis hit, they should have realized, oh, my God, look what we did. This was a disaster, right? They should have learned because we were supposedly on the verge of the worst economic collapse since the Great Depression. And this was the exact consequence of the Fed's policy mistake. So you would have figured this and, oh my God, look what we did. We better not repeat that mistake. But that's exactly what they did. They doubled down or more than doubled down, quadrupled down on the policy that had just been an abysmal failure. Again, instead of learning from the mistake, they said, you know what, let's just make it even bigger and hope this time we have an opposite result, right? If we just have a bigger dose of the drug, maybe it'll work. Maybe we'll get this economy so high that the drugs will never wear off and we could be permanently intoxicated. So then Jacoby talks again about the stock market rally that happened as a result of uh, QE1. And he says, what Fisher and other former Fed insiders told me is that the stock market rally was no accident. Well, of course it was by design. They specifically said that. And then Jacoby says, by design, the Fed's QE program effectively lowered long-term interest rates, making safer investments like bonds less attractive and riskier assets like stocks more attractive it was hard to argue with the result. stock prices kept going up yes of course because quantitative easing was focused on making long-term interest rates go down not just short-term interest rates which was the focus of just the rate cuts but of course Once the Fed brought down short-term interest rates, the whole yield curve followed, but it was the very low short-term interest rates that really made those teaser rates possible because there was a huge delta between taking on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which is what most Americans used to do, and taking on a one-year arm or something like that, or these teaser rates. This really enabled people to overpay for houses and And that was one of the biggest factors that caused the the housing bubble. That and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guaranteeing a lot of these uh, mortgages with teaser rates. Then they showed a clip of Mohammed El. Aryan, who said that was the theory. In practice, the Fed was very successful in terms of moving asset prices. It was much less successful in moving the economy. And the result is that we got the largest disconnect ever between Main Street and Wall Street, between the economy and finance. Now, of course, that's exactly what I said was going to happen in the inception of the program. But again, they keep wanting to focus on comments that show how the Fed benefits Wall Street instead of Main Street, because again, what they want to do is redirect the Fed's focus away from Wall Street towards Main Street, with basically helicopter money. And then they go back to Andrew Hussar again. He's the guy that was buying up all these assets. You know, he was hired by the Fed, and he was, he was a big fan of the Fed, and he thought he was coming there to do a really, really good job. And then apparently, you know, once he was there, he was disillusioned by what he saw. So anyway, here's what Andrew said. I have great respect for the Fed. I never questioned, and to this day, I will never question their intent. What I do question rather is whether their tools are able to help the American people in the way that they believe. I came out of QE1 100% believing that it was necessary because we had actually helped to stabilize the economy, but wondering if there wasn't a fundamental problem with the approach in that the tools of the Fed worked through Wall Street banks and in so doing, were disproportionately benefiting the wrong people, the people who didn't really need the help, right? In other words, they should have found a better way to use the tools. But he's wrong. QE1 didn't help. That's why I was against it from the beginning. But he's upset that after they did QE1, they did QE2. That's because once you do QE1, you got to do QE2. That's the problem. Once you're in for one, you're in forever. That's why I was back at the time saying that we'd have more QEs than Rocky movies. Because QE makes the problem you're trying to solve worse. It just delays the consequence. You just take more drugs because you're coming off a high. Well, now you have even more drugs. Well, you're eventually going to come off that high and it's a bigger high. And so you're now going to need an even bigger fix to get high again. So for him to think that QE1 was correct, but QE2 was a mistake, well, then QE1 was a mistake because the minute QE1 was done, QE2 was a sure thing because what is a sure thing is that the government doesn't learn from its mistakes or the Fed. So once they did QE1 and they had to do QE2, Again, that should have told them that QE1 was a mistake. Because if they had to do it again, that means it didn't work when they did it the first time. But that's not how the Fed works. If you do something and it doesn't work, you just do it again. You just do it bigger. Then they talked with Joseph Stiglitz. He said, the main thing I was concerned about was the way they were trying to revive the economy. It was kind of a trickle-down economics. Again, you know, trickle-down, helping the rich. This is Reagan-esque. They're trying to discredit the rich. The way quantitative easing works is that it's lowering of the interest rate. That leads to stocks going up, and it benefits the wealthy, right? He said this was wealth inequality on steroids. He says, so the immediate objective of saving the banking system was achieved, but the broader objective, which was helping the economy recover quickly in a robust way, was a failure. So again, the Fed helped the rich but it failed to help the poor. It actually hurt the poor, hurt the middle class. All these policies are destructive. They don't actually focus on that aspect of it. They just say they're helping the wrong people, they're helping the rich, and they should help the middle class and the poor. So then of course, they start talking about QE2, right? Because after QE1 doesn't work, they do QE2. And so now they're talking to Andrew Hussar again about QE2 and he says, I was not surprised, right, by QE2, but I was incredibly demoralized What I was seeing outside of the Fed was rising demand from Wall Street and the Fed continued stimulus. The idea that the sky was going to fall if the Fed didn't continue to print money and giving it to Wall Street's banks. Yes, the sky would have fallen for those Wall Street banks. All the stocks had been propped up by QE1, but so too was the phony economy. When the bubble popped, QE1 helped to inflate another one. So if they would have stopped doing it, It wouldn't have been just the banks that would have collapsed in the stock market, but the economy would have tanked back into a recession, and there would have been a lot of unemployment. But again, the unemployment would have been constructive because it would have been the beginning of labor being reallocated to where it's really needed, where the free market would allocate it, not where uh, the government had misallocated it through the bubble. But then he goes on to say, nobody was giving a coherent explanation as to how the Fed showering trillions of dollars on Wall Street banks was actually directly benefiting the average American. In other words, instead of showering Wall Street banks with trillions of dollars, they should have showered the people with trillions of dollars, as if that was going to benefit the average guy. And again, that's the whole point of this documentary. You're giving the money to the wrong people. Give it to average Americans. Look, it's a problem if you give it to average Americans. It's just paper. It's just inflation. It is not going to make Americans better off by destroying the value of their money. Just giving them more money that has less purchasing power doesn't do anything. But what it does do is it actually distorts the economy in ways that will impoverish people, not enrich them. So anyway, then James Jacoby asked him if this was an emotional issue for you now that he's you know demoralized because he sees that QE isn't helping the little guy, which he was told is just enriching Wall Street. And he's kind of like taking part of it. And he feels a little dirty uh, for his role in in making the rich richer. And then he says, well, perhaps it's because I was a true believer in the Fed, right? He was real ideologue. He comes there and he really thinks the Fed's going to do good. And I was worried about what this meant for the future, about how much more the Fed would double down and how addicted Washington and the markets would become to this extraordinary stimulus. Of course they were gonna become addicted. Is there any addict that doesn't get addicted to a drug? That's why you don't take drugs, because they're addictive. That's why we never should have done QE1. This guy still doesn't understand that. He still thinks QE1 was the right thing to do. He just thinks that it was too much of a good thing. It was the wrong thing from the beginning. And in fact, since QE1 made the problems worse, Right? We were in a worse situation after QE1 than we were before it, which left the government no choice in theory, since they had already gone down this rat hole, to continue it. That's why, again, I called it a monetary roach motel when they did QE1. I said, we checked in and we're never checking out. That's what this guy didn't understand. Mohammed el Arian had a good quote in there. He said that the markets are like little kids. They want candy. And the minute you try to take the candy away, they have a tantrum. And in fact, that was the introduction to the taper tantrum because they talked about how once they tried to withdraw the stimulus, they couldn't do it, right? And Yellen dragged it out. And they talked a little bit about Janet Yellen and how long it took her to begin raising rates and how she raised rates once. And then, oh my God, the stock market fell. So she held off a year before raising them again. And she never really did much to unwind the balance sheet that that didn't start until Powell really, and that's when they brought in Neil Kashkari, right? Because now they start talking about, you know, whether or not the Fed should have started to raise rates, you know, when Powell was there and the economy was supposedly doing great, the economy was growing, unemployment was at record lows, right? You know, should they have done something? And They bring on Neil Kashkari. And here's what Neil Kashkari said. He, first, he says, the Fed has been on a mission. I've been on a mission to put Americans back to work and to help them get wages up, especially for the lowest income Americans. This guy is delusional. He thinks the Fed can make people's wages go up. The Fed's just got a printing press. I mean, yes, it can make their nominal wages go up, but it doesn't make their real wages go up. What makes real wages go up? Higher productivity. What additional productivity results from merely printing money? None. All the Fed can do is create inflation and nothing else, and that does not benefit workers. Neil Kaskari does not know that, right? Power is dangerous when the people who wield it don't understand it. That's one way you could do a lot of damage with power when you have no idea what you've got. And then he said- and if it has some effect on Wall Street, well, to me, it's a trade-off, it's well worth it, right? If we can put Americans back to work, that can put food on the table, that can take care of themselves, that benefits society. So again, the Fed thinks that they are putting people to work because in Kashgary's mind, when we're going into a recession, people are going to lose jobs. And Neil Kashgary wants to make sure they don't lose those jobs. But what if the economy doesn't need those jobs? What if they are inefficient? What if those jobs were a byproduct of a bubble and now the bubble has popped and that labor needs to reallocate to where it can be used more efficiently? You see, he wants to freeze people in the nonproductive bubble jobs that they have. And all he sees is, oh my God, if we let this market crash, if we let the bubble pop, people are going to lose the jobs they have now. Yes, a lot of people will lose the jobs they have now. What Neil Kashgari doesn't understand is that they're going to get new jobs. They're going to get better jobs from the purpose of the economy because now they're going to do something that we actually need instead of something that we don't need. And the labor will be used more productively, which will benefit everybody. He doesn't get that. Then Jacoby interjects and says, hey, one of the things that we've seen in this country is a widening of the wealth gap, right? The question is, what role, if any, does the Fed play? Because again, you know, this is true. But this is the one criticism that they really have is that they're making the rich richer. And here's what Neil Cascari says in response. Well, this is a great point, and I'm glad you raised it. But most people who make this argument ignore the fact that for many Americans, they don't own a house, they don't own stocks, they don't have a 401k, their most valuable asset is their job. So by putting people back to work and helping boost their wages, we are actually making their most valuable asset more valuable. No they're not. They are keeping people in the wrong jobs and by printing money, they are destroying the real value of their wages. See what Neil Kashkari doesn't understand is that real wages were growing much faster in this country before the Federal Reserve existed. The Federal Reserve is not the engine to grow wages. It's capitalism. It's a dynamic free market economy with sound money. The Federal Reserve is one of the biggest reasons that real wages have not been rising to the degree that they were before the Federal Reserve was created. Then they actually brought in a Fed critic, Karen Petrou, who is the author of Engine of Inequality. I haven't read her book yet. It may be something that I might want to take a look at. But anyway, she talked about the fact that lowering interest rates wasn't working and that we'll never know whether raising rates would have dampened growth or not. We don't know that, right? Because they kept interest rates low. So there's no way to know what would have happened had the Fed raised rates. Well, yes, we do know what would have happened. The bubbles would have popped, right? Asset prices would have come down. Unemployment would have picked up, but all of this would be constructive. All of that would have been part of genuine economic healing. We needed to go through a free market recession where all the imbalances, all the distortions interjected into the economy by the Fed, all those imbalances need to be cured. We needed to rebuild the economy from the foundation up. And so, yes, we do know in the short run, raising interest rates would have brought forward a lot of the consequences that we had been kicking down the road with low interest rates. But it would have also accelerated a real economic recovery, which at this point has completely eluded us because we still haven't done the right thing. Now, Jacoby then talks about Petro and other critics were concerned that the Fed's low rates and easy money policies were fueling the troubling trends on Wall Street and corporate America. Of course, of course. What do you think they're doing? He said one in particular is the amount of corporate borrowing. He says that corporations are taking advantage of low interest rates. Corporations are selling bonds to big investors. I saw numerous studies and reports detailing the extent of the debt and how even marquee companies were so leveraged that their credit ratings plummeted. Then he says that the Fed had hoped that the companies would pull all that borrowed money to good use and invest in their workforce and their infrastructure. But in reality, it played out differently. Of course, right? companies were just buying back stock obviously. And then they brought in Sheila Baer, who was the former head of the FDIC. And she actually said some good things about moral hazard. Of course, the irony of Sheila Baer talking about the moral hazard created by the Fed is that she chaired the FDIC, which does the exact same thing for the banking system. I mean, the FDIC is the poster boy for moral hazard. And what does the FDIC do? It ensures... Bank accounts. What does that mean? That depositors, people who put their money in banks, don't care how much risk the banks take because the government insures it all. You don't worry if your bank makes bad loans because even if the bank goes under, the government's got your back. The banks know this, so the banks can act as risky as possible because they know their depositors don't give a damn about how much risk they take. And so they go out and take all the risk because the FDIC's got their back. So this is the ultimate in moral hazard, yet she doesn't understand this. So it is pretty ironic that she's a pot calling the kettle black, but at least she did a good job of calling the kettle black. And here's what she said. I can't fault the company so much because this interest rate environment creates very strong economic incentives to do exactly what they're doing. It's hard to create a new product. It's hard to come up with a new idea or a service. It's hard to build a plant and hire people and run the organization. But it's real easy to just issue debt and buy back stock and goose your share price, that's easy to do. It doesn't create any real wealth. It doesn't create real opportunity. It doesn't create jobs. It doesn't improve the labor market, but it's just another example of how these very low interest rates have really distorted economic activity and frankly, been a drag on our economic growth, not a benefit. Exactly. She's 100% right. Again, she's not the best person to be saying it unless she wants to come clean about all the damage that the FDIC is doing to the economy. But I guess that's the subject of a different documentary. But then Neil Kashgari comes back in again to talk about the idea of corporate debt and buybacks. And James Jacoby asks him about the elevated level of corporate debt he says, how was that viewed by you and other members at the Fed, right? You got all this corporate debt. And he said, well, it's something we pay a lot of attention to. But when companies are buying back their stock, one of the things they're telling us is we don't have any profitable place to invest. And it's easier for us to just buy back our stocks. That's concerning in terms of the future of our economy. But that's not because of the Fed. So we pay attention to it. It really matters. But in my view, we don't because it's not something we control. Come on. Does he really believe that? He's basically saying that corporate debt, the level of corporate debt and share buybacks has nothing to do with Fed policy. Well, would companies be buying back all this stock with debt if interest rates were much higher? Of course not. The only reason stock buybacks make sense is because the money is so cheap to borrow. If it wasn't this cheap, the hurdle rate would be a lot higher and companies wouldn't be able to do it. It's the Fed that is fueling this. And in fact, it's not just Neil Kashgari that is blind to this. I didn't mention this on my last podcast when I was going over the Powell Senate Q&A. But one of the questions he got from one of the senators had to do with this topic. It was corporate debt. And Powell was asked, are you concerned that Fed policy, your current easy money policy, is leading to too much corporate debt? And Powell's response was he does not see the relationship between Fed policy and the amount of corporate debt, as if corporations who are borrowing money don't even pay attention to the interest rate. Like, they're going to borrow just the same amount of money if interest rates are really high as if interest rates are really low. In other words, Powell doesn't even understand basic supply and demand if he— assumes that price has nothing to do with demand. We all know that the lower the price, the more demand. So if you make borrowing cheaper, you're going to borrow more. I mean, either Powell is completely ignorant or this is just a lie. And you know, another way that the Fed demonstrates its lack of understanding of supply and demand is the idea that if goods prices don't keep going up, no one is going to buy. One of the reasons or maybe the main reason that they say we can't have deflation is that if prices go down, no one's going to buy. But we all know when prices go down, people buy more, right? You can afford to buy more when prices go down. People respond to sales by buying more, right? Everybody wants to get a deal. The idea that people are holding out for higher prices is absurd. If anything, they're holding out for lower prices. And if you prevent prices from falling, people that might have been able to buy stuff are permanently priced out of the market. But anyway, this podcast is long enough. I don't want to get off another tangent. Then Jacoby points out that in our conversation, Kashgari was quick to dispute the criticism that the Fed is really just boosting financial markets and helping Wall Street. So he said to him, there is this idea on Wall Street that the Fed has kind of got our backs and that because you may have well-intended policies that are trying to get everyone to work, there is this side effect, this unintended side effect of just kind of really helping the rich and here is Kashgari's response to that criticism he says quote the argument ignores the benefits to the poor and for sure if you're going to ignore the benefits to the poor then we're only helping the rich but of course that's an incomplete analysis when you actually sit down and say well let's go through the trade-offs of the choice that the fed has whether it's interest rates or quantitative easing, it's not just Wall Street. It's not just asset prices. It's also thinking about the men and women in America who are trying to find work and who want to have higher earnings and who deserve higher earnings. If we are benefiting them by helping them find work and helping them have higher jobs, I will take the trade-off. But you're not doing it. That's what this guy doesn't understand. doesn't matter how much money he prints. He's not creating jobs. He's not benefiting Main Street. Yes, in his mind, He is saving some jobs. He is keeping people who would have lost non-viable, non-productive jobs. He is keeping them in place and preventing them from getting a better job that would actually serve the interest of society, that would make us more productive and raise our living standards and ultimately allow for higher wages for everybody. The Fed stands as a major impediment to higher real wages. And he still doesn't understand this. But then, after they finish talking about how everybody is benefiting on Wall Street, how rich the Fed is making everybody on Wall Street, then they move forward really to the COVID collapse, right? And again, you know, now they're back to the beginning of the documentary where it started with the COVID crash. So they kind of go full circle. And then, Jacoby says, on March 23rd, which, remember, was my birthday, but that's you know when the Fed really unveiled this new policy, the Fed took an economic experiment to a whole new level. With Congress's backing, Fed Chair Powell announced a wide range of loan programs. He said the Fed, for the first time, would be willing to buy up corporate debt. Right. So, yes, they hadn't done that before, but it's not a new program. They're just expanding the failed program of the past. They're just printing more money and buying more assets. Right. So it's not new. It's the same thing. They're just expanding it to include more paper. And so now you have this financial reporter chimes in. So this was huge. This was the Fed stepping in on an unprecedented scale and saying to the market, we will do whatever it takes. Its actions weren't unprecedented because it had done these things many times before, including prior to the 2008 financial crisis, which the documentary conveniently denies the Fed had any part in. But the difference is now it's the scale that's unprecedented. Now they're going to do whatever it takes. Then Jacoby talks about that by the end of March, Congress would also enact passing the largest economic stimulus bill ever, $2.2 trillion CARES Act. The bill rushed to the president for his signature He mentions that a big portion of the bill, nearly half a trillion, was earmarked to support the Fed's lending program. But what he forgets to say is that the rest of the bill, or all the bill, was supported by the Fed. It was paid for by the Fed. Because where did the $2.2 trillion to fund the CARES Act come from? came from the Fed. Was there any criticism of that? No criticism at all of the CARES Act, nor the way it was financed by the Fed printing money. Then he mentions that he doesn't think people are aware of how close we came to a bona fide financial crisis. Why was the economy on the epitome of a crisis? Because the economy was so fragile because it was a bubble inflated by bad monetary policy. And what was the Fed's cure? Well, more of the same bad policy. So now we're on the verge of an even bigger financial crisis. We're always just one bubble away from the next financial crisis. The problem is, eventually, they can't do anything about it. Then they brought in Jeremy Gartham to, again, talk about the heads-eye-win-tails-you-lose moral hazard. He says, over the years, we've been trained to believe that the Fed is on our side. What the Fed has trained us to believe is that if we make a bet in the market and we win, we're on our own. We get to keep the profits. If we lose, they will bend every effort and every dollar they get their hands on one way or another to bail us out. This is asymmetry of the most splendid kind. Of course, heads I win tails-you-lose, massive moral hazard, yes, This is obvious. Again, this is the only criticism that they really make of the Fed. This is just one part of all of the problems that the Fed creates. Then Howard Marks, they had him come on and he had some criticisms. And again, on the moral hazard, he says there are negative ramifications to this, meaning the moral hazard, which means you're conditioning people to believe that if there's a problem, the government will bail you out. And if people really believe that, then there's no downside to risky behavior because if there's a problem, it won't fall on you. You get bailed out. If you play aggressively and succeed, it's your money. If you play aggressively and you fail, you get bailed out. Again, exactly the same thing that the FDIC is doing with the banking sector. Banks fail, they get bailed out. They succeed, they keep the money. Depositors know, hey, I'm going to put my money at the bank that gives me the best deal, that pays the highest interest or has the cheapest services, the lowest cost accounts or the most ATM machines, whatever it is. Nobody gives a damn about the risky behavior that the banks may be engaging in because no one cares. Their money's not at risk. But before the FDIC was around, people cared. People just didn't put their money in any old bank. They did a little research. (laughs) You know, right now people do research before they buy a cell phone right? They look at consumer reports, they look at reviews, they go online, you know, they want to make sure they're not wasting their money. They want to buy the best product. They do that with all sorts of products, yet they'll put their entire life savings into a bank without doing any research at all. They'll just go to whatever branch is closest to their house. No one cares. Why does no one care? Because of the government. That's moral hazard. The Fed does it. Every time the government gets involved with a subsidy, it creates a moral hazard. So to act like this is an exclusive problem created by the Fed and it just affects the rich is not true. But then Sheila Baird again made some good comments on moral hazard. She said she fears the Fed is stepping in not just to bail out Wall Street but the entire corporate America. It's starting to be embedded into people's thinking. People talk about the survival of capitalism, but this is the biggest threat to capitalism. In good times, when everybody can make money, you reap the profits. In bad time, the Fed just keeps stepping in. You have this never-ending ratchet up. The market's never correct, absolutely. But then James Jacoby goes back to Neil Kashgari, and he says, hey, wait a minute, Neil. This is the second time in 12 years that you and your institutions have had to funnel into the financial system trillions of dollars And there is this sense that the financial markets have an ironclad backstop from the Fed, right? They did it in 2008, and now the markets collapsed because of COVID 2020, and they're doing it again. And Neil Kaskari says, well, I completely agree that it's unacceptable that 12 years after 2008, we had to do this again. I am proud that we did what we did. It was the right thing to do. No, it wasn't. It was the wrong thing to do. He said it was necessary, but it is unacceptable as an American citizen that we have a financial system that is this risky and this vulnerable. Yes, it is unacceptable. But what Neil Cascari doesn't understand is the reason the American financial system is this risky is because of him, because of the Federal Reserve, because of the moral hazards that he's created, because of the artificially low interest rates that have enabled all of this debt. When you marry moral hazard with artificially low interest rates or 0% interest rate, you get a toxic combination. So all of the fragility in the US financial system, all the risk, all the leverage is a direct consequence of the Fed, yet he is somehow absolving the Fed of all responsibility, and he's just as mad as everybody else. He's upset that the system is so vulnerable. It's like Frankenstein creates a monster, right, and now Frankenstein is upset that the monster is wreaking havoc in the village. Well, accept responsibility, Dr. Frankenstein, for your own creation. And then Jacoby asked Kashgari, But what if any responsibility or accountability does the Fed have for the financial system, having been so risky and so vulnerable? Perfect question. Great question. Here's Neil Kashgari's ridiculous answer. He said, Well, I think all financial regulators that have a seat at the table have a responsibility for what was left incomplete after 2008 and where we go from here. We need to use this crisis to finish the work that we did not finish after 2008. So in other words, he's blaming the regulators. He's saying, hey, it's not our fault that we printed all this money. It's the regulators fault for not making sure that people didn't act irresponsibly with all the free money that we doled out, which is a complete cop-out and is ridiculous to try to blame a lack of government regulation that somehow the government needed to defuse the bomb that he set, complete nonsense. He has got to accept responsibility, but this guy is completely brainwashed when it comes to his understanding of the economics or the Fed. I mean, I, I don't know that this guy's lying. I just think he's that clueless. He's, he just actually believes all this nonsense, which, again, makes him particularly dangerous. And then, right, James Jacoby, because he gets this ridiculous answer. And so he says, hey, with all due respect, I wonder if you could be a little bit more explicit with me. What will the Fed own when it comes to the vulnerability of the system? Of course, it owns the entire vulnerability of the system. It created the system. It wouldn't exist without the Fed. And then here is what Kaskari says, well, I reject the thesis. I actually don't think it's been the Fed's monetary policy that has led to these vulnerabilities. I think it's been incomplete regulatory policy that has led to these vulnerabilities. Oh, really? So bringing interest rates down to 1% had nothing to do with all the mortgages that were taken out, all the teaser rates. Obviously. People could buy a lot more houses when interest rates were at 1% than they were able to buy when it was at 5%. And how about what's going on now? When you have interest rates at zero, you're making debt so cheap and then you're gonna absolve yourself of all the responsibility that so many people are borrowing all this cheap money? I mean, what are you putting the cheap money out there for? It's like you're a drug dealer and you're giving out all these drugs And now people are using your drugs and people are overdosing, whatever's going on. And now you're blaming the police. Well, you know, it was the police's fault. They didn't do a good enough job of making sure that people didn't use the drugs that I was giving everybody. I mean, how could you not accept responsibility when you are at the center of the problem? And when you hear stuff like that, you should realize how ridiculous they sound and what this really tells you about what they're doing. To say that the interest rates that they set have no relation to the amount of money that's being borrowed, especially when, forget about just supply and demand, but the goal of the policy is to get corporations to borrow more money. And so now they're saying, well, the fact that they borrowed more money, that's got nothing to do with us. That's got nothing to do with interest rates. Maybe he's thinking that the government should have prevented companies from borrowing the money that they were lending. When the reality is the other way, it's the Federal Reserve that's supposed to be preventing all this stuff. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be denying the US government the ability to borrow all this money. They should not be monetizing the debt. By doing quantitative easing, it's the Federal Reserve that's the enabler of the federal government. Everybody is loaded up with debt because the Fed makes it all possible, and now these guys are trying to shift the blame for their problem To other actors. I'm not saying the government is blameless, but it's not because they didn't have enough regulation, but because they had too much. Then you had along these lines, one of the best uh, lines from the documentary was from Peter Fisher who was with the New York Federal Reserve at one time and he worked at BlackRock. And he said something that basically I've been saying for a long time. He said it's pretty basic in medicine. That our doctor may give us a drug which in a small punchy dose for a brief period of time might help us recover from whatever ails us but the same medicine in the same drug taken in massive doses over long periods of time might kill us or make us ill or have perverse side effects exactly what i've been saying we are going to overdose on quantitative easing and artificially low interest rates that overdose is taking longer than i thought We're able to take more and more of the drug and we're higher than I thought the Fed would be able to get everybody. But all that means is the ultimate collapse is going to be that much worse. Then they start talking again now about the financial mania that we've seen recently. Uh, They talk about the stock market making new highs again, but then they talk specifically about, you know, the meme stocks and NFTs and cryptocurrencies and how everything is going up. So people are using all the cheap money to bid up all kinds of asset prices and people are getting rich. And then James Jacoby says there's a growing conversation right now about the Fed's role, about whether it's driving wealth inequality, whether it's driving asset prices into dangerous territory that could pop right in our faces and whether the financial system can withstand that. These are the seemingly legitimate questions about being in what seems to be uncharted territory. Now, again, this isn't uncharted territory. We've charted this territory many times in the past. We have the dot-com bubble. We have the housing bubble. This time, we just have a bubble in everything. But the source is the same. It's just bigger. And the consequences are going to be bigger when the bubble bursts. And here again, Neil Kashgari, here's his answer. These questions come from people who are keen Wall Street observers. He said, I have never once heard this line of questioning from a member of Congress that represents a low income or minority district. Never once have they come to us to say, why can't you do more? They say, oh my gosh, you're just benefiting Wall Street, raise interest rates because I want to keep Wall Street in check. They say, help my constituents find work. So he's basically saying that the Congressman, nobody is demanding that he raise interest rates. Nobody wants tighter monetary policy. Of course. Especially members of Congress who are looking for more government programs, they need the Fed to finance that. And these guys don't understand the difference between make work and a productive job because they don't have productive jobs themselves. They just think we could all be members of Congress and everything would be great. Somebody has to make stuff. So he said, that's why I find these questions so amusing, because I hear from all the time from Wall Street, and there are these folks who don't care about what's actually happening on Main Street, but I don't hear it from Main Street. In other words, he's saying that nobody on Main Street is criticizing the Fed. All the criticism is coming from people on Wall Street who are criticizing the Fed for making Wall Street rich, but no one on Main Street is criticizing the Fed. Yes, they are. Maybe this guy has never been to Main Street, but a lot of people on Main Street don't know enough to be critical of the Fed because they don't understand all the damage that the Fed is doing, mainly because the media doesn't understand it either and does a lousy job of explaining it. Then they finally get around to inflation, right? They talk about the price of everything going up now and how the Fed is insisting that the inflation is transitory. But the most interesting part or ridiculous part of the inflation topic is that not once do they blame the inflation on the Fed. They don't blame it on the Fed's monetary policy. They don't blame it on the deficit spending by Congress that the Fed is monetizing. They just act as if, oh, now all of a sudden we've got inflation, and the Fed is just claiming that we don't have to worry about it because it's transitory without actually blaming the Fed for their inflation or preparing the people who are watching this documentary for the fact that the inflation they're experiencing right now is going to get a whole lot worse. And they end the documentary with the following quote, the risk of turning the valve off is economic collapse. You would see asset values actually drop through the floor and a complete lack of confidence. The Fed, by the way, would not, I can't imagine, turn it off in one move. But when the Fed does move, it's going to want to do it probably quite gradually. And then the question is, will they be able to do it in such a way that doesn't create massive economic dislocations? Now, we already know the answer to that question, which is no, because they've never been able to turn off the monetary spigots without creating massive dislocations. That's what happened when they tried to turn off the spigots after they inflated the dot-com bubble. That's what happened when they tried to turn off the spigots after inflating the real estate bubble. And that's what's going to happen when they try to turn off these spigots. It is impossible to take away the drugs once you've created an economic addict. It just is possible. So this is not an open question. It's not like we have to speculate. Are they going to be able to do it? And it doesn't matter whether they try to take the punch bowl away slowly or they do it all at one time. Because if they give Wall Street advance notice that it's going to happen, well, then they immediately start pricing it into the markets. The markets discount the future into the present. So the minute the Fed starts to raise interest rates, even if it tries to do it slowly, the market gets ahead of the Fed and then the markets start to crash. And then before the Fed ever gets around to doing what it said it was going to do, it has to reverse policies because the market crash that they wanted to avoid by doing it slowly happens anyway. And then Jacoby ends the whole thing by saying, whatever the Fed does next, the consequences will affect us all. Well, we know what the Fed's going to do next because we know what they've done in the past and they always do in the future what hasn't worked in the past and it's not going to work in the future either. We're going to get the consequences. We're going to get the real crash. We're going to get the overdose. We're going to get the runaway inflation. And again, if you want to watch a real documentary, that does a much better job of outlying the problem and the real source of the problem and now maybe more importantly where we're headed you got to go and watch the bubble movie and the sequel at LetUsDisagree.com <music>